Good afternoon and welcome to the Emerging Tech series of the Leadership and Insurance podcast. I'm your host, Gavin Savage, and this is the podcast where we speak to technology founders, executives and leaders from the world of InsureTech. And today, I'm very lucky to be joined by co-founder and CTO of Federato, William. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. Um, Delighted to have you on. And this will be the second person on from Federato in in quick succession. So, yeah, we're super interested in you guys. Yeah, no, I mean, I listened to the one with Will and that was uh, that was awesome. So hopefully I'll I'll have something new to say. Um, Hopefully Will didn't steal my thunder. No, no, absolutely not. Alex and I, I think we do a pretty good job of going down um, different routes. But, uh, you know, a nice place to start, you know, your backgrounds are kind of similar to a degree, but of course, very different. So would you be able to explain a little bit about yourself, you know, your career background and and how you ended up in the world of InsureTech? Yeah, good question. How does anyone uh, end up in a world of InsureTech? No, um, really quickly, my background is really just a a core mathematician, um, focused a lot on statistics in my past. Um, A lot of my research was actually really focused on reinforcement learning, Um, worked a lot on algorithms, different chatbots. So it was really fun to kind of three years ago, four years ago now, I was doing research and was working to uh, build chatbots to help children learn math that was actually what i was really focused on but a lot of those algorithms you know as you can imagine were super hot and were you know being used in things like ChatGPT and being really emerging and so it was really on the forefront of that um realized that you know reinforcement learning and, and optimization in general is much more it is super valuable not just to build chatbots um, but really to just optimize things in general right and realized that uh, in the insurance world, there is a big need to actually optimize something, right? Um, and in my case, that ended up being optimizing portfolios, right? And thinking about the insurance portfolio. And so started to learn a little bit more about the space. Um, I wasn't in the insurance space before I was kind of a researcher. Um, but, you know, I happened to do some work in forest fire modeling, Um and that's kind of when I started bumping into the, the problems forest fires cause, right? Not just damage-wise and you know the obvious the obvious ones, but also in terms of how insurance companies are really struggling to deal with those kind of events, right? And started to learn that it's really important to think about correlations within your portfolio and think about kind of for my your portfolio from a helicopter view. Um, and as I started working on it, I, I realized that not just insurance companies, but if you really look at who who makes a difference at insurance companies, namely, you know, underwriters and actuaries are really struggling to talk to each other um, and and implement what they think is uh, is the right strategy for their portfolio. So that's kind of how I started rolling into the insurance world. Just saw the opportunity, saw the the challenges, right? Saw the problem, um, and started asking questions. And when those questions weren't answer it appropriately or where I saw kind of there's wow there's there's really a lot to do here um started to kind of work into the space so yeah it's been an interesting road for the last um last couple of years and um yeah just uh seeing a lot of opportunities still um to to grow and to kind of provide with impact and um and apply some of the models that I've been researching right um mm. so yeah awesome so <clears throat> kind of started out mathematician and then moving into, you've definitely categorized that 
problem solver that's good at engineering than not an engineer that's a problem solver. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, that's true. But what I would actually say is that it's not so much about solving the problem in this case, it was more about finding the problem in the first place, right? right. I mean, it's something that I, you know, I mentor a couple startup founders as well. They're a little earlier states than I am. And, you know, one of the things I always tell them is, the hardest part is not to solve a problem. The hardest part is to actually find a problem, right? And this is, I think, what we really spend a lot of time doing is, you know, we had a certain background, right? But we spent the first six, seven, eight months not writing a single line of code, right? Not even solutioning at all, right? We basically spent those months interviewing underwriters, right? Like literally go and sit down, email and LinkedIn message all these underwriters to ask them, hey, do you want to spend an hour with us and, and get a $50 Amazon gift card, right? Um, and that's what we did for months, right? Just to truly understand the space, truly understand people's like people's problems, right? Because we talk a lot yeah. about business problems, but I think it's really important to think about the people's problems, right? Um, and kind of go from there. So um, yeah, really taking more of a mindset about like, what is the actual problem we're trying to solve and then solving the problem is usually easy, right? Um, that is, becomes the easy part usually, especially if you're in an industry that is building statistics and you have a statistics background, right? Then it starts to really, really click, but finding the problem in the first place was, uh, is I think much harder than actually solving it. Yeah. I mean, we can come back. Definitely. We'll come back to that. Why? this problem or did you stumble upon it? But I think for those that have listened in recent weeks, we'll know the Federato business, but just for those that haven't yet listened to that and will tune into this, you know, could you explain, a, you know, in your own words, you know, a little bit more about the Federato business and, and what the overarching mission is? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so Federato, we basically built what we call the risk ops platform. Um, the idea of our platform is really that we combine you know, thinking about risk, thinking about the portfolio, thinking about portfolio management, accumulation management with operations, right? Underwriting. Um, and so really what we've built is a, is a platform that, you know, in, in at the first place really allows underwriters to do their work, right? Just look at accounts, look at new submissions, look at exposures, do documentation, look at your referrals, like anything you need to do as an underwriter, you can do in Federato, right? But we're not an underwriting workbench, right? We're not trying to just do that, right? Because there's a lot of them out there and, and that's not the problem we were trying to solve, right? What we do is we then second to the underwriting piece, right? The the under, call it, call it the underwriting workbench, right? But there's there's more than that. Second to that, I'm sorry. Um, there is the, the risk piece, right? And so there's the piece that is more about, hey, Let's allow underwriters, uh, sorry, actuaries or, or analysts or product managers or whoever, right, to go into the Federato platform um, and actually allow them to set the portfolio goals, right? Say, hey, I only want 10% of my portfolio to be in this specific region, right? Or I only want 20% of my portfolio to have wooden roofs, not more than that, right? And so they can go into Federato, create kind of portfolio goals like that. And then what we do is we really combine the two with our optimization algorithm, right? That takes all those portfolio constraints and goals as an input and then outputs basically recommendations for underwriters that say, hey, if you want to meet these portfolio goals that your actuaries or your product managers have set, 
you should be looking at these specific submissions or you should be focusing on these accounts, right? And in that way, we really streamline that communication from, hey, what do I want my portfolio to look like to what actions do I actually, or do my underwriters actually need to take to achieve that specific portfolio, right? So it's really all about that communication piece and, and allowing for um, that communication between the actuaries and the underwriters that uh, is, is kind of special about us and, and, and really what we do. Nice, nice. And and we saw at FinPro, you know, we announced it. That's how we came to actually talking. You know, you raised your 25 million in Series B funding uh, very recently. You know, you've you've been through three rounds since 2020, um, seed to Series A to Series B. You know, how has the experience been for you guys generally, you know, within fundraising in this climate? And, and do you feel like, you know, from do you feel like since your first fundraising fundraising round to now that you know you've learned more about well yourself, you know, the, the, your company? Like, how how has the experience been for you guys? Yeah, no, good question. I mean, obviously, the the fundraising climate is pretty bad, or has been pretty bad over the last two years. It's getting a little better now, but it has been really bad. So that is absolutely true. I think we were. In during when we raised our seed round, you know, we were very lucky to bump into um, you know, we got a lot of notes, right, as we started off. And and the seed round was maybe even the, the most difficult one. Um where we bumped into a lot of different investors and we ended up bumping into Caffeinated Capital, who, you know, was willing to basically make a bet on us, right? And it was definitely a big bet. Now, that really helped us kind of move along and go further and we saw a lot of growth. We saw a lot of interest from insurance companies and, you know, where the fundraising climate wasn't great, the insurance climate, right. Or, or the amount insurance companies wanted to invest in just innovation and, and buying new products actually was pretty, uh, was, was fine. and was pretty good. Um, so we got a lot of growth out of that. Right. And I, I think the product really showed that um, there was a true problem here and and that kind of our approach and, and that we were really solving it. So we saw a lot of growth and then series A, you know, I, I'm not going to say it was easy at all, but um, it felt easier than the seed round um, and, you know, went really well, super, you know, happy and thankful to kind of be joining with, uh, with emergence. And um, yeah, the series B was effectively our, our existing investor saying, Hey, things are going phenomenal. Um, we want to double down on this and we want to kind of help you grow faster. And for us, you know, we weren't necessarily looking to fundraise at all. Um, but we were also like, well, either like about a year from now, we can spend, you know, full, we, me and, and my co-founder, we can spend, you know, months full time trying to fundraise and lose a lot of time. Right. Or we can take the money now, really focus on growing the business and delivering value to our customers and you know kind of go from there and not having to fundraise and so that seemed supernatural to us and so we started the conversations and um yeah that ended up uh, working out into the series b so um yeah that's kind of how it went for us it, it just you know the seed round was difficult and that was a lot of pitching but from there on it was kind of the product and the company's growth that really made it uh made it go a lot easier mm. and who's who's the pitcher out of the two of these sorry <laughs> 
who's the pitcher out of the two uh, you and your co-founder uh i think will is i i am yeah. I, I come in when the technical questions get asked <laughs> and <when laughs> want to talk about the algorithms um yeah. so uh no he's the pitcher he pitches but um i am definitely there when uh when the hard questions uh, be are asked but uh no i i tend to focus a little bit more on the business building delivering value to customers um and, yeah. and kind of being really involved in that and who else kind of focused a little bit more on the fundraising and that's a really good combination for us now mm. we do both right like i think we're both extremely interdisciplinary and love focusing on on either's job but um that's how we've uh, usually worked it in yeah mm. and just kind of going back to the seed round caffeinated capital you, you mentioned that they took a, a big gamble on you is it more just curious is it a gamble in the sense that just because you guys were early stage or is it a gamble because you were bringing to market ai within insurance was that you know quite what was once seen as quite taboo within insurance yeah. like what, what was what was the gamble yeah i think the big gamble was more about the fact that we didn't really have a, a product right. right so as i said you know earlier we focused our first you know six seven eight months um, doing research, right? And we weren't building anything. So when we were ra like raising our seed round, we were extremely good at describing the problem, right? But we didn't have much to show, right? We didn't have a, a demo or, 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 well, we had a, a little bit of a demo, but nothing that was production ready or anything like that, right? right? And I think that was more the gamble. The gamble was more about, hey, can you execute, right? Um, and can you actually solve this problem versus, you know, is there a real product market fit or is there a real problem here in the first place? Right. Mm. And I think that's a little bit different than how most VCs look at investing. Right. And they, at that stage, want to see a little bit more product market fit, but um, look at the end of the day, like it's more about the problem. And, and if we can execute, which I think we have, right. Um, then it then it's very clear that there is going to be product market fit and there ended up being product market fit because we started growing super fast. And so that seemed to work really, really well, but it was a gamble for them, right? Like it's more about like, hey, do we trust these guys that they can actually solve this problem they're describing? It was not so much about like, are you solving a real problem and is there a market opportunity here? Because there clearly was. We were very good at describing that, but I think yeah. the question is more about like, can, can you actually execute? Mm. Interesting. And, and I was curious from our previous conversation, you know, something that you touched on, you mentioned that you were surprised by what what the data told insurers within catastrophic modeling, you know, as to what the carriers were actually doing with it. You were really surprised and there was an obvious thing there for you that you capitalized on. But what was it that you were surprised by the most? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that is exactly what you're saying, right? The communication between, you know, modeling and coming up with these these portfolio models and ideas, and then actually looking at what gets executed and what's what gets worked in, right? And yeah. I think that's for me a huge, you know, surprise where I went, wow, you they actually have a lot of carriers are using great models, right? Their forest fire model, their their flood models you know, they're, they're just general exposure models are actually really good. Like there's really good technology and, you know, yeah, could, could we improve that? Probably. Right. But not by significant amount right now, unless we were to go and only do that. Right. But um, the models were really good. And so what started to surprise me is, well, if your models are that good, why are you not able to actually 
build your portfolio in a sustainable way, right? And then I started to look about how they started communicating some of those results of those models to actual strategy. And it turns out that a lot of it is just PDFs and Excel files, right? Like, hey, this extremely complicated you know, model that is built in all kinds of super complicated math is predicting that I, or is telling me that I should be, you know, ensuring more here and less there, right? And now I'm I'm kind of going 50 years back and put that in a, in a PDF, right? And send that PDF over email to my underwriters to actually use it, right? And I go, wow, you have this, you have this Ferrari in your garage, the model, right? And, and then what you end up doing is you, you pick up your old timer and that's what you drive away with, right? Like it's, it's just, it feels wrong or, or kind of, <laughs> it, it feels actually using what you have, right? And, and so that's kind of what we were really surprised by this. You know, if you invest all this, this time and money into great models, then why don't you invest in actually making sure that you can operationalize them? Yeah. And another question in terms of surprises that I wanted to ask, you know, you're not traditionally from insurance. And it's a common theme, you know, that we, we joke about, oh, you know, everyone fell into insurance, you know, kind of like when we talk about recruitment, because the day job is not podcasting, I'm executive search and, and everyone says, oh, we fell into it, we fell into it. But not being traditionally from insurance, you know, really open question, but what surprises you the most about insurance like what are your takeaways so far on just working in the insurance industry with insurers good or bad yeah no i mean for me it's mostly what surprised me the most and i i kind of was this expecting this because i wasn't i wasn't expecting it to be this bad was the technology right, right. and the technology that they're still using i mean i i heard stories about carriers that literally had a like on-premise server like a physical server right somewhere in their buildings and you know they literally couldn't sell insurance for this is like one of the largest insurance companies in the us right and not not necessarily a customer but just a general story i heard um yeah, yeah. that definitely was true and they uh had their servers like actually on-prem like physical servers and the, the janitor he took out the 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 power for some reason because he wanted to clean it or something and just taking out the power <laughs> caused them to not be able to sell insurance for like two days straight, <laughs> right? It's like, and, and that's just incredible. Amazing. Like this huge million dollar, like a billion dollar uh, insurance <laughs> company. And it's just like, right? And that's the kind of stuff like, yeah, these guys are still using 30 year old databases and software and like on-prem servers, right? Like they are, it's not, they haven't moved everything to the cloud, right? Like even... They're one of the slowest out there. They're they're slower than things like than than companies like in the banking space. It's just yeah, yeah. They are really, really slowly going to the cloud, and not that they don't want to. I think a lot of carriers know and want to actually move to the cloud, and they trust it. It's just mm -hmm. that when you have all these historical policies in your in your old databases that are are that old, you know, trying and migrating them over is actually really difficult, right? Yeah. I don't blame them necessarily. It's just it, now, once we've dove into it, it's actually, you know, it makes it obvious why it is so difficult to do, right? And this is where, you know, a lot of the times is we are actually almost consultants as, as Federado in terms of, hey, we've seen companies do this successfully, right? We've seen carriers do this successfully and we can help, right? We can 
show you kind of how you do it or show you how we've done it for carriers, right? Because we've actually done, you know, with one of our customers, they they did have the data in a in a 30-year-old database and kind of we introduced them to a way and now to to get it into a more modern database in, in our database actually. And um it's they've completely you know removed that really old database. So there was a huge success story. And you know that's something I think that is a little underestimated from the value that can, we can provide and kind of what we do is, you know, we, we focus on this risk ops piece, but to do that properly, you actually have to organize your data properly, right? Yeah. And that's the piece that actually for a lot of carriers are still really difficult. Um, and that's what we, a big part of what we do and where we actually spend our time, right? Is helping carriers organize their data, getting it into a more, a more modern stack and, and just kind of pushing the reset button and say, okay, Let's figure out how we're going to get this data into one place, and then we can unlock all the value out of it, right? But we do need to do that first. Mm. God, I can't believe that story about the janitor. <laughs> yeah, it's that crazy. Is, that man. is wild. I mean, it doesn't even seem like it should be true, but you know, you seem super <laughs> confident that it is. But the, you know, that question that I ask a lot, and 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 I think you kind of touched on it's not because they don't want to, and and you made a good point with them banking, and I see it all the time insurance or insure tech is exactly where fintech was banking about 10 years ago but they're within under that umbrella of financial services so why not just copy what they're doing and it just kind of begs the question why is tech literally decades behind in your opinion because you you know i noticed from the articles that i read you know you guys travel a lot you know you meet your customers you're really hands-on you've you've really got under the skin like there's been so much opportunity to change and make people's lives easier from underwriting to policy to claims. What what do you think the reason is why they've just been so slow to adopt? Well, insurance companies are extremely risk averse, right? Mm -hmm. And executives that work for these insurance companies just are. That's kind of why they work for an insurance company. And so, you know, when they get asked a question, well, do we want to spend all this money and this time and this risk migrating over to a modern tech stack? Um, then they immediately see all the risk, right? And that's just something is a bit of a mindset. I think that mm, we need to think about um, in the insurance world on whether that actually makes sense, right? And I, I think a lot of it's not that nobody wants to, right? I, I think that all the CIOs and the CTOs we speak to that have worked for carriers, they they know and they want to go to the cloud and a lot of them already have a lot of initiatives underway right and that's the right initiative to take um however you need to do it in a way that uh keeps adding business value incrementally right it's not a like you know we either do it or we don't do it kind of thing it's like incrementally building it out incrementally going from those those systems and at some point, you know, you wake up and you realize, hey, actually, we might not need this old database anymore now, right? And that's, I think, how it works. But if you don't do that and if you don't actually invest in modern technologies and you're always on your, you know, if you're always on your your Guidewire or your Majesco, your 30-year-old policy admin system or 20-year-old policy admin system, yeah, not much is going to change, right? And these projects take years and hundreds of millions of dollars and I think that's kind of the the problem is once you've invested so much money and so much time in these really old systems, you kind of don't want to lose your face and go away from it, right? You don't want to, it's kind of like sunk cost, but um, I totally understand, right? It makes perfect sense. And so, 
you know, what we've seen being really successful is kind of keep doing those projects if you really need to, or if you really want to, to keep to kind of save your face. But next to that, invest in, you know, newer technology, invest in kind of more modern partners and see if they can, in a more easy and faster way, kind of move the needle a little bit, right? Yeah. And that's something that we have been really successful doing, kind of working along some of those really old uh, policy admin systems is, you know, kind of help move the needle a little bit, move some of the stack to ours, you know, just think a little bit about, you know, what technology are we even using to do these migrations and things like that. Um, and that's been really, really successful um, and really interesting, right? And it's not, it doesn't mean a huge data change or, you know, a massive undertaking. It's, it's just incrementally going from, you know, zero to, to a lot more and, 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 and suddenly waking up saying, Hey, I don't need this anymore. Right. That's yeah. kind of what the, what the, what the strategy more should be. But the thing as well is for me, again, it's obvious like you have CTOs, you have technology led minded people in the business that you would, you know, and this isn't a dig at current incumbent CTOs or anything, but you know, you've got to be able to quantify that risk into dollars and return on investment. And, Again, you're seeing a lot of insurtechs outside perspectives coming in and, and managing to do that. So you guys have came at them with a piece of technology that's aimed at risk ops, you know, that's really the sweet spot. I mean, have they is it taken a lot of convincing or have they just loved it off the bat? Um, I mean, it it's it gets back to, you know, don't want to be willing to take risk. It you know, it always takes convincing at the end of the day, like these are big decisions for a carrier, right? And there's a lot of mm. consulting going on. And, you know, there is a culture, I think, in the insurance world where, especially at the bigger ones, where everybody needs to speak to everybody, right? Like a decision is not usually made by one person, it's 15 people, right? And so, you know, including 15 people in the decision-making process is obviously going to slow things down quite a bit, right? Sure. And so, you know, there's still you know, that, that we have to think about and play with a little bit, but, you know, if you look at it from the other side of the, the contract, you know, once we're going, it's been overwhelmingly positive. Right. And we've seen a lot of change and a lot of kind of partnership with our, with our customers that really moves the needle forth. And, you know, a lot of kind of new initiatives that we're, that we're working on with them and, you know, we're growing beyond what we had initially scoped and, and those sorts of things. So that's, that's awesome, but we do need, to get to the point where we're actually partnering versus where we're still mm. in the process, right? And so there is that kind of mutual investment that needs to be made. You know, we're yeah. obviously investing our time and and consulting kind of and partnership, but we expect the same from the carrier, right? And so, um, look, I, I see a lot of carriers doing, you know, a POC and like a free POC kind of thing, right? And I'm like, free POC is never going to be successful because it basically means you're not invested. If you're not spending any money, right. And you're not actually putting something on a table, then, then how are you going to expect it to be successful? Like you're not going to be able to motivate anybody to work on this or spend time on this on your team. And if no one on your team is, is, is supporting us, well, good luck trying to make a creative partnership and creating value. If you're not spending time on it yourself, right? Like it can be a one-way show. And so, that's yeah. I think the thing that we have to understand is, you know, you do need to invest time and resources into a partnership and actually working through that and growing from there. Doesn't need to be huge at all, right? But don't make it a free POC where you're bound to lose from the start, everyone, 
right? Mm -hmm. That's kind of the, the, the thought process there. And, um, you know, I get it from a risk perspective because, you know, you can ask yourself like, what's the risk we're taking if we're not paying? I think the risk is that your data remains in these really old systems for too long. That's for me a big, much bigger risk than, you know, spending a, a couple or hundred thousand dollars on a, on a, on a proof of value. Right. Um, so, yeah. you know, that's yeah. just my suspense, but um, yeah, that's, it's still, it's still a challenge. And, you know, going back to the early days, yourself and Will co-founder studied AI researchers, you know, this might seem like a really obvious question, but again, I can't have an AI expert on without having to kind of touch on that as a broader topic. But before we kind of get into that, why, why did you choose to get an AI? What, what, like, obvious question? Or like, was there something deeper um, to it? Good question. Actually, I've never been asked that question before, so it's not a, not a bad question. <laughs> um, you know, I just love statistics, right? Yeah. When I started, you know, I actually came from a, um, econometrics background and econometrics is actually an interesting field that is more about uh, proving inference. So understanding models and understanding relationships versus making predictions, right? And so we actually used not even, you know, you can call it machine learning. It's kind of in between whether you want to call it machine learning or not, but it's not like deep learning, extremely complicated models. It's, it's more understandable, could be linear, right? But um, more parametric models that you can actually kind of write down and understand, right? And I came from that space because I was just really interesting and interested in understanding um, relationships between between things, right? And, and mathematically modeling relationships. And so um, came from that background. And then while I was thinking a lot about the statistics, I learned about you know the ability to actually go take a step deeper and and, and predict things, right? And that's where you know, I slowly rolled into um, the more predictive analytics and that's where kind of the real deep learning and machine learning models and AI comes in. Um, but I actually started from more of a mathematical, hey, let's let's do inference, let's understand relationships first before we start predicting them um, uh, background. So um, yeah, that was kind of for me the, the, the way I rolled into it. Um, it's, I still love both. I still love thinking about the inference and thinking about the predictions, right? And they're very different pieces of the 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 machine learning and statistics world. They're, you know, almost there's there are not a lot of people that try and do both. Right. And I think that's for me how I kind of rolled into it and, and started to understand, you know, it's really cool to be able to do both. And especially when you can start making predictions, but so use some of those techniques that you would use for inference to understand why you're making certain predictions, right? is where that combination of the two uh, becomes really, really, really powerful and interesting. So um, yeah, that's kind of how I how I rolled into it. I mean, I, I really got deep into it when I uh, was asked by a professor to kind of start doing research with them and, and start publishing. Um, that's when I had to, you know, truly dive into the deep theory and, and get some of that understanding and, um, that was super cool. Um, and I still actually work with that professor, but, um, that's, uh, that's kind of how I, how I got into it. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. And everything that's going on with, you know, for me, I'm super excited. I'm an AI geek with no real deep background in it, but <clears throat> I think with everything that's going on, I'm excited, but also very terrified, <laughs> you know, and I think going, looking outside of insurance again, just speaking to an expert like yourself, you know, we see, 
these AI models from generative AI to AGI, you know, how do you feel about the whole status quo? Like, how do you feel about where we are with it? Like, do you feel comfortable or? I I, I do. Um, And and let me explain you why. The way I look at anything, you know, machine learning, right? Whether it's that gen AI or reinforcement learning or whatever it is, right? Mm. Effectively, all machine learning is, it's two things, right? First, we as humans, right, need to define what we would call an objective function, right? So that's actually, what is the thing that we're trying to optimize for, right? And we have to very clearly define that. Then the second thing is, okay, how do we optimize for, like, how do we actually do the optimization, right? So there is, we need to define what the optim, what we're optimizing for, and we actually need to do the optimization itself, right? Over the last two years and kind of this really big breakthrough, um with with chat gpt has nothing to do with the objective we've just become a lot better at at, at optimizing right we've become a lot better as once we've defined what we're optimizing for actually optimizing towards it right and so that's the piece that we can do really really well now um the scary part is the, the only scary part is more about defining what we're optimizing for Right. So a lot of the things that people are a little bit scared about is always based on humans not being able to op- to correctly define what they want to optimize for. Right. And that's, I think, the exact kind of that is where maybe there would be an issue. I believe that the only way this could go wrong or this could go a path that we don't want to is if someone were to, you know, purposefully optimize for something bad. Yeah. Right. Like there's there are going to be criminals or or terrorists or whoever, right? That use a lot of technology that we've done and worked on to optimize really well and create like and and do it for the wrong objective. Right. And that's not, you know, that's just similar to the invention of of weapons, right? Like, you know, now we have a weapon, we just have to make sure that it doesn't get into the, you know, that that nobody else wants to do anything wrong with it, right? It's kind of the same thing, right? Like we, now we have this really good optimization algorithm. We just got to make sure that someone doesn't use it to, you know, optimize for the wrong thing, yeah. right? Like that's, it's maybe a bit of a weird parallel, but um, that's the way I think about it. And I think we can very clearly regulate that, right? Mm-hmm. And, and do that. Now, there are still people that are concerned about, well, what if people with good intentions accidentally um, optimize for the wrong thing? Because this that does happen, right? Hey, I want this, you know, little bot to give me answers for something, right? And because I didn't actually in my, uh, well, actually, let's let's take insurance as an example, right? I want this bot to give me a better portfolio, right? And that's going to be my objective. Well, I didn't in my objective say that it needed needed to be fair. So if I didn't specify that it needed to be fair. The bot could make very unfair decisions and unfair recommendations, right? That's on me as the human who defined the objective. Yeah. That's not AI, right? That's just on, on me, right? And so we need to think very carefully about what we're optimizing for. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where the biggest risk is. Uh, and as long as we can do that properly, then, you know, that's that's okay. But, you know, there's a lot of like, thoughts and people saying, you know, what if machine learning models get their own, you know, thought process and they go and take their own and they have their own will and all of that. And I'm like, no, like we've, that's we've watched, not- we've, 
We've watched too many movies, haven't we? Yeah, and I was like, that's <laughs> not how it works. Like, you st- models still optimize for what you define it to optimize for, right? Yeah. Unless someone starts to explicitly try and, you know, optimize for a, a, a model having its own will, which I don't even think is really something we can optimize for, uh, you would never have that, right? Like, that's just, you're always giving it an objective. And that, as long as that objective is not bad, then... Uh, we're we're okay, right? We just have to be very mm. careful about defining the objective. Yeah, and I think that probably brings me on to my my last point on the AI piece. But you know, maintainability, ensuring the optimization is is done correctly. We've seen the rate of AI's ability to learn, and as you touched on, people being a bit paranoid could this develop its own thoughts. I don't personally think that, but is there is there a danger within, or is that I'd probably imagine that's one of the big concerns for insurers, you know, when you take the portfolio data, you know, is it going to be biased and it's learnings and information gathered? Is it completely containable and trainable on ethical standards, you know, because bias within AI is, again, another hot topic at the moment, you know? Yep. No, and that's that's a fair concern, right? I mean, that gets to, like, the example I gave about, like, the person who is actually optimizing or defining your objective function isn't defining it right. Like, you can't just say, hey we need to diversify our portfolio as much as possible. Like that would be a very bad objective to set, right? Because the real objective needs to be, we need to diversify as much as possible and make fair decisions, right? And then you have to define what a fair decision really means, right? Um, But we can actually define that, right? Like we can say, hey, we don't want to have uh you know you can say i average between you know different ethnic uh families or what i'm insuring can't be different across different ethnicities right like that's a very clear constraint you can set and write down as part of your objective function mm-hmm. right you, but you do have to do that right yeah. you can't just go and like <laughs> say okay diversify my portfolio no you have to be defining exactly what that looks like right and that's yeah. it's not easy at all but it's something you have to actively think about. And that's where we need the regulation, right? Mm-hmm. That's where we need to have regulation about, hey, you need to actually prove that you've put effort into making your objective function fair and you know ethical, mm-hmm. right? And that's the piece where I think we need to learn a little bit more and need to work through those things. But um, you know, that's uh, we still are figuring that out. Until we figured it out, there's it's it's a super valid concern, and it's something everybody should be thinking about when they're using AI in in terms of insurance. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, look, I mean, as a kind of finishing point, I always like to. I think we always like to on this podcast finish from a culture perspective, but that was super interesting on you know within AI and insurance. But for you guys, founded in twenty twenty, two and a half years old now, maybe coming up for three, scaled the company to. Uh, 40 plus or just sub 40 i think is that um and uh is it is it fully remote or is it is it distributed across the u.s like how how, how, what's the makeup of the federal we're all across the u.s and canada we're all remote so uh we have a tiny little office in san francisco um but for the rest we're all remote we're all kinds of nationalities i mean I'm Dutch. My co-founder is Canadian. We're, yeah. you know, it's it's we're extremely uh, international and multicultural, and um, I love that. Right, that's yeah. why I came to the Bay Area. To be honest, like the amount of diversity we have here is just 
it's so much fun, right? So many different types of people, different types of cultures. And, you know, I, I love that. I love building a team like that. So uh, we're, we're pretty multicultural and um, I'd like to keep it that way. Hmm. And as a young kind of entrepreneurial founder, what is the, for you and well, you know, what's the single biggest thing? If maybe that's an unfair question, the single, but you know, the biggest thing for you to get right when it comes to building a company like that across territories, you know, different countries, like what's the, what's the thing that you thought to yourself, we need to nail this on? Mm, building the team. Building the team, building, building the culture. Building, yeah. building the culture. I mean, I was talking about how we have a lot of different cultures, like from a, you know, for, for our people, but you do need to make sure that the cultures like form into a, a company culture that is desirable. Right. And so I have a very different background as well. And I have a very different way of thinking and a very different, you know, I come from a very different culture, right. Um, as some of the other people in my team, I mean, I'm extremely Dutch in, in a way that I'm very direct and don't, you know, I, I would never call something, you know, extraordinary or crazy or anything. Cause I'm just very straightforward and kind of down to earth as, as we Dutch would say. Um, but that doesn't mean that there's not a common culture between all of us. Right. And that's, I think the thing we are finding and trying to recruit for is, um, even though we come from different cultures, there needs to be something common with the rest of our team. And for us, a lot of the times that's curiosity and yeah. a desire to kind of understand things from first principle. Right. So I, wherever you come from, wherever, you know, people, people were born or, or grow up or whatever it is. Right. I think everybody in Federal, you'll find that they're very passionate and curious about what we're doing. You'll not find anybody who's like, just give me the ticket. I'm not going to ask any questions and I'll just yeah. do it. Right. If you, if you talk to an engineer, for example, like we just don't have people like that. Like people are going to be asking, like, explain to me why, right? Like what, what does this feature do? Put me in front of a customer so I can learn from them. Right. That's the type of people I think we're really trying to look for. Um, because for me, it's really important that people are involved in what they built and aren't just, you know, robots and, and, and coding out whatever is asked. Like, no, you need to take initiative, understand what you're doing, understand why you're doing it, and then you'll do a better job at it. Mm. And I think that will resonate with a lot of, you know, founders and startups at the stage that you guys are at. Like, do you feel like that's finding those people is maintainable at scale? You know, and and maintaining that culture, or at some point, do you just kind of do you just kind of need guys and to just give me the ticket and let's go? <laughs> yeah, no, I I hope it is. I mean, I don't think you'd ever be successful if you had only people that were just like, well, tell me what to do and I'll do it, right? Because yeah, yeah. At the end of the day, as a you know, and I'm kind of taking a little bit of an engineering perspective on this, right? But if you do, then like, you're not going to build it right if you don't understand what you're building. Right. As an engineer, you are making a ton of small decisions, design decisions, right? Coding decisions that actually affect the user experience. Right. And if you don't understand what the user experience needs to be or why it's being used, those decisions are going to be wrong. And all those super tiny decisions pile up into an, an unusable product. Right. And so you know, you can design things perfectly and completely define your whole product, you know, exactly like it needs to be. But if the engineers don't understand why it looks like that, 
they're still going to be building the wrong thing, even though they might build it exactly to spec, right? And that's just the, the thing I think that just is an example of how it works for engineering, but it works all across our organization is you need to be understanding what you're building and why, um, because otherwise all those tiny decisions you're making are going to be the wrong decisions. Mm, fascinating. Well, look, we've, we've very quickly run out of time. It's, um, it really does fly by, but uh, William, I just want to thank you for, for coming on. It's been, it's been a lot of fun and hugely um, interesting. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. Yeah.